Blog Talk Radio. Hey, welcome everybody. This is Girl Power Hour. We're back for this Wednesday. And we are excited. Well, I'm excited because I get to interview my co-host. And like I said on our Facebook page, I'm going to put her on the hot seat. So this should be interesting. But let me let me give you a little background on Tasha first. She does everything. I mean, I don't know of anything she can't do. Um, some of the things that she's done and still doing is she's a writer, she's a talent agent, event coordinator, a director, a choreographer, an artist. She was a graduate student, salon coordinator, substitute teacher, and blogger. <sighs> and she's continually doing new things all the time. She's an artist that does wonderful, wonderful abstract art, um, and she writes for different uh, magazines. And, I mean, I can't keep up with her. So, hey, Tasha. Hi, Annette. This is a new experience. It is. You have to kind of keep quiet until after I introduce you, huh? <laughs> I know. I'm not used to that. Quiet's not what I do best. No, no. Well, this is going to be fun because, um, like I said, you do so many things. And um, one of the things that I want to ask you about is your time management, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But because um, I think I might need some help with that. <laughs> but... But um, I gave that whole list of things that you do. And one of the things I wanted to ask, is there any one thing that you like doing more than anything else out of all the things that you've done? Is there one thing that you really like better than any of it? You know, that's a really interesting question uh, and and a good one because it stumps me. I Honestly... um, I would have a different answer for that every time, every season, because during the fall, I would tell you it's uh, choreography and TLR. Um, and if you ask me now, I would tell you uh, it's writing because that's where my focus is. Uh, if you asked me uh, last week, it would have been painting because that's what I was doing then. Yeah. It changes all the time. Honestly, I, you know, even as a kid, I, I had so many different dreams and so many different passions. Um, I have a, I have a great deal of gratitude to my family. Uh, interestingly enough, for their dysfunction because it created uh, in me this need to really resolve and express, you know, resolve things that were going on with me and express myself. And luckily, they introduced me to many creative outlets, and I'm I'm grat I'm really grateful to them. I have a lot of gratitude for the creative outlets as well as the dysfunction that led me to do that because a lot of good things can come from that, you know, this, that dysfunction you, if you turn it around. And I always had a lot of dreams as a kid and, and I still do. And so I actually just love with all my heart every single thing that I do. Well, that's good because a lot of people are stuck in doing things that they really hate, but they do mm-hmm. them anyway. And, um, yeah, I think that's that's important to love what you do, and it's, 
if you can do that with everything that you do, whatever you're doing at the time is what you love, I guess. Yeah. And honestly, I've never, and you know this about me, and I think that you're the same way, uh, and uh, I think it's something that those of us who are dreamers just do. It's, I will not do something I don't love. I just won't. There's not a, not an amount of money in the world that will make me do it. I'm not money motivated. I mean, I, I want to have abundance and wealth and prosperity because I think we all deserve that, and there's certainly enough in the world for everyone for us that, you know, for people that think that there isn't, well, that's a lie. There's plenty for everybody. Um, right. But I also know that, you know, there is no point to doing something that you don't love. If you don't love it, you're not going to do it 100% anyway, and it's not helping anyone because the energy that goes into it is not going to be love. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, you to put love in, to put in love, light, love and light into things that you do, you you got to love it. And so I just won't do anything that I don't love to do. And I've always refused to do that and for a very long time. I was accused of not having a work ethic because I would quit jobs if I didn't love them. Um, uh-huh. But, you know, now now I consider myself to have a dream ethic. So I don't have a work ethic. I don't. I have a dream ethic. And that means that I I live my dreams and I want to do what I dream. And um, and I want that to make money for me and I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure that it does. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a good way to think about it because I really do think that once we find that niche or those niches that we truly love and put our efforts into, then it gives a, a, a way for abundance to work its way in. Exactly. I think that's that's important. And what you said about, um, I was reading something last night, and you said the same thing about being grateful for the dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's important. We have to think of it as, you know, you're not going to be the person that you were meant to be had everything just been perfect for you. And exactly. you had the perfect family and the perfect life and, you know, then that wouldn't have been, you know, who you ended up being and, and love so much right now. So I think that's exactly. great. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay. <laughs> so I know there was an event that happened a while back not too long ago, and it prompted you to start putting together a book. You want to tell us about that? Yes. Um, so as anyone that knows me knows, uh, my beloved husband, Prince Rogers Nelson, uh, passed away. Uh, he passed from this earth, I would say. Uh, he's not gone, still here, but uh, but certainly passed from his earthly body. And you know, I, I, I know not everyone listening was a, was a Prince fan. I know that. Um, and honestly, I was not a fan either. I, I wasn't someone who had posters of Prince in my house or in my, in my uh, room as a child or anything. In fact, I, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of Prince music. I mean, of course, I grew up listening to Purple Rain and 1999, all those albums. But um, I was more of a, a lover of Prince and what he stood for and his energy and his spirit. And I felt a deep connection to him. And I, I wrote an article right after he left this earth because uh, 
along with many others in the nation, I soon found out, in the world, actually, um, I was grieving him deeply and not not in a way that felt normal because it, it felt like, you know, I didn't ever even go to a Prince concert. I mean, I, I wasn't uh, someone that could say that I knew every song he'd ever written, it was, you know, and I wasn't, certainly wasn't like, you know, in his life, in his personal life. So it felt odd to me to be grieving him so deeply as if I had lost literally a husband or, you know, a really close friend or a family member. And it it hit me, uh, of course I soon found out there were many other reasons, but certainly initially it hit me that as a child in a dysfunctional home, um, I was considered, I mean, I went through many different roles. You know, there's, we've talked in the past on shows about uh, the roles in a dysfunctional family and uh, I assumed many different ones in my, in my childhood and throughout my young adult life. But as a small child, I was a lost child. I switched back and forth between hero and lost child. And so I, I always went to school. I always tried to do my best. I always tried to be perfect, but I also was just really in my room at all times, listening to music constantly and burying myself in that world. Uh, I wrote music. I've taken piano since I was five. So I took lessons from the time I was five until I was 18. And, and I wrote songs all the time and I listened to Prince constantly. And I really, he resonated with me. His, his soul resonated with me. His words resonated with me. And then when Purple Rain came out, the movie, um, that really resonated with me because although he would later say that that wasn't a complete like autobiographical movie, uh, it was in part very similar to his life in that there was dysfunction in his family of origin and, and there was abuse. So it resonated. And I think it resonated with a lot of people who were in the same situation as children. And he was a lost child himself. I don't know that he would have ever put that label on himself, but I, I would have because he certainly used music and he always said in interviews, which, which were very minimal, he didn't do many, but he did say, you know, that music was his therapy and it really kept him balanced and grounded and sane. I mean, it's what he used to heal and lost children often use music for the same reason. And he certainly, you know, had all this dysfunction in his family and he let it do the same thing for him. It didn't destroy him. Um, it put him in a situation where he could use music to heal and to help, you know, inadvertently heal others. And so whenever he passed from this earth, many of us who in the, in the world, in the nation that, that felt that same uh, lost child experience really resonated with him and then really felt a deep, deep loss when he was gone because it was almost like our champion, our hero left the planet. And I wrote an article about that uh, for Sober Recovery, which is one of the publications I write for, and it's an online publication. And it received a great deal of attention. And, you know, the thing that was so cool about it was that I don't take credit for really any of my work. All of my work comes from spirit. I'm just a vessel and, and it, it gets pushed through me and anything that comes out is from somebody else. And so I, I honestly don't take credit for it. It's not mine. Uh, this was not written by me. I mean, my hands typed it, yes, but someone else wrote it because, you know, it, it was a lot deeper. It reached a lot more people than I myself could have. And 
I received so much feedback from it, and it got so much attention that even the publisher, you know, the uh, the actual editor and and the publication reached out to me, and and I realized this was bigger uh, than I even knew that that my grief was shared by many, and um, it was a it was a much bigger deal, a much bigger loss than any other I'd experienced, because we lost Bowie, you know, not too long before that, and of course I felt that as well, but it wasn't nearly as deep and and so I decided, okay, you know, there's a lot of people out there that really want to share that love and um, they really want to do something with it. And I was guided by spirit uh, to put, put something together. And so I, I was told, you know, okay, this, a book would be, a, would be a good way to self-publish. You know, you and I both have discussed self-publication. And, and I think Prince yeah. would only want that, being that he was certainly against the corporate hand in your, in your work um, to make it your own and to own it yourself. So uh, that's what, you know, I, I decided, okay, that's what we'll do. Then I'll have this book and, and let people send in their submissions and their letters of love and gratitude and inspiration uh, for many reasons, but most importantly, one to honor to honor him and his life and the way that he touched so many, but two to allow people an opportunity to heal because, as you and I both know, that's that closure and that uh, opportunity to express it is just so necessary, and it gives everyone an opportunity to do that in a very public way because it's not like any of us who weren't actually close to him could really attend his funeral and get up and speak about him. So this gives everybody an opportunity who couldn't do that. It gives them an opportunity right. to do that. And and so the book is, you know, the sky was all purple. Of course, if you know anything from mm-hmm. 1999, that's part of the lyrics. And and actually, I'm still accepting submissions. So up until September 9th, uh, people can still send in submissions to my email address. Uh, it's CherokeeSharia at Hotmail.com, but we can post that on the page later. But um, I get re- I'm already getting submissions from all over the nation and the world and it's it's exciting and I and I love reading them all they're very touching and so I would love to receive more if anybody out there is listening and would want to send any in good good yeah if any of you are interested please please contact Tasha and um, she'll take the September 9th you said yes September 9th is is the, the deadline for submissions Get it in because I know she wants to get it published, and it takes a while to uh, put those things together. <laughs> yeah, yes, it does. Find out. <laughs> so, all right. So, talking about books, and you were talking about your childhood and uh, the dysfunction. You're also, I know you've been working on it for quite a while. You're also working on an autobiography. Autobiography. Goodness, if I could talk, it would help. Um, and you've been, you have been working on that for quite a while. You want to tell us about that and tell us what prompted you to want to put it out there for people to read? Yes. So, um, you know, as you know, Annette, I have many mentors in my life, one of which is Dr. Carl Anderson. Uh, he started the Center for the Study of Addiction and Recovery at Texas Tech University. Um, I, I owe him a great deal of gratitude as well, uh, as do many people who have been struggling in any way in, in addiction and recovery or being an adult child of an, of an addict as I was and as I am. Um, but 
whenever I took his course, one of his courses in, in tech, I, you know, I stumbled into that uh, center quite literally. I was uh, looking for a new, um, a new way to take some courses that had to do with addiction. And I was majoring, this was in my undergraduate work, I was majoring in psychology and I had happened upon a course that had to do with substances and, and, but it really didn't touch on the dynamics of addiction. Um, growing up in that, you know, of course I was led to try to understand it. So of course that's what I majored in and trying to find addiction stuff in psychology. I just, I couldn't find it. I mean, the, the psychology department really didn't have much on addiction. Uh, like I said, they just had a, a, a class that dealt with drugs, but it was just more the toxicology of it. So, I was led by one of the psychology professors to get in touch with, you know, people in HDFS, which is Human Development and Family Studies, and um, I looked through their available courses, and lo and behold, there was a course called Family Dynamics of Addiction, and I thought, well, I, there's a class I was born to take. It's this one, yeah. and so I immediately signed up for it, and honestly, there was, like, only one opening, and so, I mean, it was a real meant-to-be God thing. And I got in the class, and the very first day of the course, Dr. Carl Anderson stood up and said, you may think you know why you're here. You may think it's just for college credit. But by the end of this semester, you'll know the real reason you're sitting in this seat. You'll know the real reason you're in this room and the real reason you were meant to take this class. And he was exactly right. Um, Of course, initially I went in to try to understand my family, and then I tried to understand ex-boyfriends who struggled with addiction. And my pattern, you know, of them, I had many. So I was trying to understand all of them and really trying to, you know, see all their faults and flaws. And uh, when I got in that class, I thought that's what I was in there to do. And uh, most surprisingly, of course, by the end of it, I figured out it was me, you know, that I needed to be looking Mm -hmm. at and what were my issues and uh, the codependency and the issues that come with being an adult child of an addict and and all the stuff that I hadn't looked at within myself and even the pattern of dating, you know, active addicts and alcoholics. And so uh, he had us right. And one of the ways, this is one of the ways we found out why we were in there. He had us from the very beginning of the course journal. And it wasn't just a journal, like, you know, you might write about the class and a lot of courses to journal your experience in the class. But he wanted us to write about our lives and um, our experiences and our lives that resonated in the class and vice versa. So um, I decided, okay, (laughs) this is a great opportunity to just write about my life. And I chose to write in an autobiographical sense Um, my journal in that way. I didn't sit and write, you know, at the end of the class. I really just sat down for the entire semester. I was processing through my life and, you know, so to the point that the person I was dating at the time was exposed to my nonstop crying because I would just constantly go in and, and basically just purge all this, you know, unresolved pain and, and stuff onto these, pages and and just crying 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 it was a very healing cathartic experience um and i was so uh i guess healed by it and and i mean i still had a lot of work to do because i hadn't even got into counseling yet for myself but i it just made such a big impact on my healing my personal healing that i knew it was something i needed to delve into 
further, more than just a semester's worth, and it's certainly more than the surface. And so I presented it at the end of the semester like everyone else did, and, and Dr. Anderson really wanted to publish that. He was really impressed with it and wanted to publish it uh, at that time. And, of course, that didn't happen, and and I tucked it away, and... I kept a copy of it, you know, I kept something in my computer, I kept a printed copy of it, and I I just tucked it away and didn't really do much with it. And every once in a while I'd come back to it and, and look at it or, you know, revisit it. But I never really had an opportunity to sit with it. I mean, I was always working, you know, going to school, doing different jobs plus DLR, and, and I really just never had a chance to just sit down with it and really work with it because, as you know, when you're writing something that's autobiographical, it take some emotional energy. So oh, it's yeah. something you really have to put put aside some good time for. So I um, began to revisit it really intensely about three years ago with the intent of publishing. And the interesting process has been every time I think I get it where I want it to be and I send it somewhere, of course I get rejected all the time. So to any writers out there <laughs> want to write, remember yeah. any artist or anything that you do, I mean, rejection is just a part of it. That doesn't mean stop. That just means, you know, it's just, it's not time or that's not the person, but you just keep, you just keep going because that's just a part of it. I've been rejected more times than I've ever been accepted by anything. So, and that's, you know, part of the experience, but so it's been rejected millions of times. It's been sent out numerous times and, um, and there have been, of course, people that have, you know, I've definitely had, I would think I was real comma crazy for a while. I had a lot of people telling me that, and I was too egotistical to admit it. But now I realize, you know, okay, yeah, maybe I was. But the truth of it is editors handle all that. So it's never really been an editing issue. It's just been that it wasn't right. And when all this happened, uh, you know, with Prince leaving the earth, and then I, I really had a lot of a spiritual, a real big spiritual experience. And um, I felt like, okay, you know, what it's been about is that there was a lot of writing that I needed to do for me to heal. And that's true. Um, but now I need, I, I'm really led to go back and write it in a different way. It's still my story, uh, but it's got a lot more resolve in it than it had previously. There's been a lot yeah. more healing. Yeah. And so it's got a lot more resolve in it and, and it needs that before it goes out into the world because you know, there's nothing wrong with, I mean, your experiences are your experiences. We all have emotions. We all even feel hate, all of us. No matter how much love and light we we have also to give, we also experience hate and anger and frustration and all of that. We That's there, but we have to face it and heal it and resolve it. And so that resolve just wasn't really there yet, and it needed to be. So it just wasn't time yet. And so now I'm really wanting to put it out into the world because that's the key, you know, really to go through the whole process and, and come to a resolve at the end. And, and that's what I was waiting on was that ending. And it's, it's, of course, you know, it's never ended, but I mean that, that right. resolution, that's what I was waiting on and, and it's here. And so that's, that's really now what's made me want to put it out there before I just wanted to tell my story. And now it's really about telling everyone's story and, and not really mine so much as, as, everyone's you know in my life and, right. and those who will re who it will resonate with um and just really sharing some some resolution to some deep-seated pain well good i hope you can get that out there quickly 
with all the rewriting yeah, and all this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it will take a while. It will take a while, and that's okay because it will get out there when it's supposed to. Exactly. Definitely. Okay, so moving on. I mean, we have to move on because there's just so much stuff. <laughs> um, also an artist. Um, and you do visual art and you do performance art. But I want to talk about your visual art right now. And how have you found that, um, or have you found that to be a healing experience for you? Yes, most definitely. Um, you know, painting is something I actually started painting whenever I was, uh, very young, and I was encouraged to take lessons. Again, I, I owe a lot of gratitude to my family for pointing me in those creative directions. Um, I wasn't really drawn to it then because, again, I was just more into music and writing music and and more involved in that. But as I got older, uh, in my 20s, I revisited that, and I was really, at that time, my art was comparable, and I don't mean this by any means uh, to sound egotistical in any way. I'm just saying the style of it was comparable to like Jackson Pollock. It was a real splatter of painting, and um, mm-hmm. in that way, it was it was very cathartic because I was literally taking whatever energy was going on with me and just throwing it out on the canvas, and uh, some of it, you could see the anger in it. <laughs> some of it, you could see the love in it. You know, it just uh, it was definitely oh. something I was just purging out again. But then it began to evolve. And as as an artist, I think you should always be evolving. And so, you know, there's people, and I take my cues from Prince on this too, there's people that would say, well, I like the way you used to do something. The things you used to do, well, then you're stuck there. And I'm not because I keep evolving. And, and so it's going to keep changing. It's never going to be the same. Um, that's not the point, I don't think, of art. Personally, that's my personal opinion. But I continued to evolve into a different style, uh, still, you know, always in the abstract form, but kind of moved towards something different. And I had a real emotional experience happen in 2013, and I used painting for about four months really to get me through it. And that's all I did. I, In fact, I was still a salon coordinator at a local salon and I was I was actually taking time off during that time and all I was doing was painting and I mean waking up painting and literally not going to bed not finishing up not cleaning brushes until like 1 a.m. and just churning it out and the beauty of it again I don't take credit for this uh, this is something that was moving through me and helping me move out the things that I needed out of me, the stuff that was, you know, emotional and, and needed to be uh, processed was getting processed through the paint, through the paint. And I knew it wasn't, it wasn't me. It was some, something else that was moving through me and helping me heal. And that same something else, that same higher power, that same spirit was also making those pieces, uh, I guess, lovable to the people who saw them because they were, they were being purchased. And enough so that I could not do anything but paint and and make a living. And 
then it really hit me. This is this is what I want to do. Like, this is where I want to be. I, I want to be painting. I want to be writing. And these are things I always wanted to do as a kid. You know, I was, I remember being told, you know, those are dream jobs. You need a real job. And, uh, you know, to me, it's like, okay, I'm the kind of person I think now that I want to wake up to a dream, not from it. You know, I don't want to wake up from a dream. Mm-hmm. I want to wake up to a dream. And so that's, that's, what I always wanted as a kid and, and I refuse to do the quote unquote real job. That's the rebel in me, thankfully. And now, you know, I'm doing the dream job and I love it. And, and it's, it is healing. And every time I do it now, no matter what it's for, even through commissions, I'm a big believer that anything that comes my way is meant to, you know, heal me along with the person it's going to. It's all, you know, there's no accident. There's no coincidence. Everything happens for a reason. I'm a big believer in that. And so even the commissions I receive, you know, there, there's a reason behind what, what I do. Right. And, and it ends up being bigger than much, much, much bigger than me. So, yes, it's very healing, and it's it's been a really powerful process in my life. And I I really encourage anyone out there, whether because it's not about whether or not you think you can, quote, can, paint that's not it I mean art is art you know it doesn't have to look a certain way I mean especially abstract stuff there is no certain way it needs to look just just do it because it's so it's so healing just to do that creativity of any kind is healing so yes 100% on whether or not it healed it it continues to and it always helps me go deeper and deeper and and uh, not to keep quoting this man but but Prince, you know, even said, you know, the the deeper you go into the well, the the closer you get to your destination, your final destination. So you keep evolving your soul, and and that's that's what painting does. That's what what any creativity, uh, any creative outlet will do. Yeah, and you have evolved because I've seen your work from early on, and and um, it changes all the time, which is a good thing. Um, yeah. You sound like me, you like to experiment with things and do different things and you don't want to get stuck into one medium or one style. Um, you want to make it your own and what speaks to you and what will speak to other people. So exactly. That's a, that's a good thing. All right, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Because we do have other things to talk about. Um, okay. So you have also been writing for different publications. Tell me how that came about. How did you start that process? Because well, there may be um, people out there wanting to know how to do this. You know, how if you're a writer or you want to write, you know, how do you get your your name out there? How do you get your pieces out there for people to read and to write? And who do you write for? You know. Okay, and that's that's actually a great question. And honestly, um, I've been approached by a few people asking me that. And I gotta say, it, it feels weird because it's like, I don't know, you just do it. I mean, like it's just the way that I the way that I do everything. But the truth of it is, I think you just first of all have to understand one you will be rejected. It's like, it, okay, I taught color guard 
for years, and even just like the last couple of years, I taught, you know, color guard during the summer, like flags and, you know, rifles and all that. So in color guard, kids are always scared when they're first starting out and they've never touched a flag or a rifle. They're always so worried they're going to get hit. And so they'll toss something up in the air and then run before they even have an opportunity to catch it. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that that's not be- going to look good in a routine. So you have to tell them that unless we're doing Michael Jackson's Thriller, that's not going to work. You're going to have to stand there and you're going to have to catch it. So um, they say, you know, what I'm, I'm going to get hit. I'm worried I'm going to get hit. You know, it's, it's going to hurt. I, I'm just scared. So I just look at him and say, you are going to get hit. It is going to happen. You know, you're going to get hit, but it's going to hurt for like two seconds and you might have a bruise. That's it, you know, and then you move on. And then it's not as scary. Once you get hit, you just realize that's part of the process and you move on. But you're going to eventually catch it. You're going to learn how to catch it. It's going to be good. So then Uh, they kind of realize. Let me me throw this in there. That's kind (laughs) of like my, my son who's a tattoo artist. People will go in to to see him, and they'll say, is it going to hurt? What? (laughs) (laughs) You've got these needles poking your skin. He said, no, it's going to (laughs) hurt. But it'll be okay. (laughs) Exactly, and you'll have a beautiful end result, yes. Yes, absolutely. And that's the thing. So it's with the same thing with anything in life, but it's certainly the same with writing. You're going, you're going to be rejected. You're, it's going to happen many times, not just once, not just twice. Multiple times you will be rejected. That does not say anything about the quality of your work. That does not say anything about you as a writer. That does not say anything about whether or not you should be writing. It has absolutely nothing to do with any of that. It's just not the publication you're supposed to be writing for, or it's not the area in which you need to be writing or it's just not that particular you know moment in time but that doesn't mean that you're supposed to stop writing and that doesn't mean that you're supposed to stop trying and of course with me I've always been rebellious and if somebody tells me I can't do something to me the only bad word in the English dictionary the only quote-unquote four-letter word is can't that's it there is no other like to me the f-bombs are just fine that's fine you can f-bomb people all day long just don't say can't uh and so to me, there is no reason that you, you know, should stop trying because it's a, it's a matter of finding the right person. And so what I did was take, you know, I knew where my, I knew where my niche was. I knew where my passion was. And so it's always been in personal growth, empowerment, you know, healing, uh, recovery, addiction, things like that. That's always been my passion. I, I have some, you know, comical stuff I can write about in my life, of course, because uh, I do funny too. I do funny. I'm not serious all the time, but I'm I'm <laughs> also you know, very geared toward putting some good healing information out there. Um, laughter is healing as well. So, but all the other stuff is necessary too. So, I um, I decided, okay, I'm I'm gonna, you know look first into writing for addiction or recovery. And I searched the web um, trying to find as much information as I could. You know, it's not always easy when you don't yet know about the freelancewriting.com and uh, freelance writing gigs and all that stuff that you and I both have looked into. If you don't know about that yet, it's pretty difficult to 
find those little things. So I would just type in, you know, I mean, that's the beauty of the Internet. I mean, I don't know how people did this before, how they became writers before all this, because now it's it's really honestly pretty easy to just locate at least a publication. So I just went in and used the keywords, you know, addiction recovery. And I found um, some some different publications and some different job offers. And I sent a lot of pieces out to a lot of different people. And, of course, as you yourself know, Annette, um, a lot of people would write back with either they weren't interested, they didn't have the you know, a need for it, or if it was one that was requesting, like a job offer, and they were requesting writers, they either didn't like my work or they weren't willing to pay for it. They wanted me to write, they loved my work, but they weren't going to pay or yeah, they were going to pay like you know, $25 or something. There. Yeah, there are a lot of them. And let me just put this out there now. Do not write for the don't because – uh, the only reason they can still exist is because people are doing it, you know, and I understand that if you're putting great information out, you just want to say that you're a writer. That's all well and fine. But the truth of it is it's your art and it's you that you're putting out that you deserve to be paid for that. It's just like anything else. It's not about the money. You don't have to think, well, it's not about the money. I, I want people to hear this or see this or it doesn't matter. The truth of it is, this is something that, you know, you should be paid for because it is something that you're doing, that you're putting out into the world. It's no different than a dentist who goes and, you know, does his job or a plumber that goes and does her or his job. I mean, it doesn't matter who who out there does it or what they do. They get paid for their job. And if you're putting your time into it, then that's something you need to get paid for because you need to know your worth and that's a valuable part of you and you're putting it out into the world and you need to be paid for it. So I knew that. And I've been told many times with great mentors in the past, know your worth. So I stuck to my guns on that and I knew my worth. And I finally found uh, a publication. It's actually more of like an entity, um, recovery brands that I decided to write for. And they were, I'm grateful to them because they did kind of put my foot in the door in the writing world and certainly in the addictions, the addictions field of that writing world. And they helped me, um, kind of hone my skill of writing because there was an editor that really went through my work and helped me um, write better. But that situation didn't work out. Uh, there were a lot of difficulties in their system. And so I ended up not writing for them anymore and just started writing every once in a while for The Mid. The Mid is a is a online publication that's for people in midlife and it's really funny and humorous. I mean, there's some serious stuff too, but it's mostly humorous. And so I had fun writing for them. And, and they paid quite extensively for every um, piece that you wrote. And, and I was lucky enough to get published with them quite a few times. And, um, and, and, and you know, because I've vented to you many times about these situations, there were times yeah. where I was like, gosh, I just keep pushing. I just keep sending. I just keep trying. I'm just not getting anything. And, you know, you just have to keep keep pushing and I did and I finally just I, I think I just bugged people to the point that they're like okay my god here try it you know so they so I don't just leave them alone and um eventually that paid off and I my persistence paid off and I I ended up you know writing for a whole slew of different publications and now I I have the honor of of writing for uh you know sober recovery and stages of recovery which are two different obviously addiction and recovery outlets and then 
Metro Leader and um, Hometown Living, which are kind of news-oriented and, and home, hometown life-oriented publications, and then uh, Solo Parent Magazine. And even though I'm not a parent, uh, I do write for them because I'm kind of like uh, the person she goes to about mental health issues or addiction issues, and and she consults with me on that. And they also do a podcast, Solo Parent uh, Solo Parent Nation. I think it's called Solo Nation. Um, and it's a great podcast that uh, Jolie Harmon does. She's the CEO of and well, the editor-in-chief and everything for Solo Parent Magazine. And so I've had great opportunities and great experiences since then. And, and one thing that it taught me, I will say to also writers out there, just like anything else, just like, you know, we talked about when we had Elizabeth on, like if you find a counselor that keeps you in a negative space, go find a different one. Mm-hmm. It's the same with when you finally find a publication that will accept your writing don't just settle for that if it's not if it isn't a good experience if it's something that isn't doesn't feel right don't just settle for it again know your worth even if you're getting paid because I was getting paid for that one but if it becomes more drama than it's worth or more hassle than it's worth move on to something else because it's it's just really good to finally get really good editors and I mean every person I work with and for now they're just fantastic and I ended up praising my editors all the time because of the experience I'd had in the past with other editors that weren't so organized and weren't so awesome and everyone now is. And so I'm totally grateful for all that. And I, and again, I, it's not me that writes it, you know, somebody else writes through me, but it's a great outlet uh, to be able to express all that and put all that out there. And anybody out there trying to do it, just keep trying. That's, that's all I can say. Just keep pushing until you find it, find the place that, that you're meant to be. Yeah, with the with the internet, there are endless endless publications that people mm-hmm. can reach out to. You just have to spend the time to look and um, send, you know, what you've written, um, or pitch a, a story or pitch a topic. You know, um, a lot of and places that's, just that's want the to other pitch thing. it. Yeah, and that's the other thing. You make such a great point there is that you spend all that time researching. Because I, I know, and you know, I spent so much time researching publications. That's the other reason that you deserve, by all means, to get paid when you finally find one. Because you've worked. I mean, you get that, uh, you know, school of hard knocks degree. Like, when you're just trying to get money from these creative outlets. I mean, any musician out there that is trying to make it in the music world knows that. You know, it's... It's a, it definitely, it, the process itself of trying to find a gig or, you know, trying to find management or trying to find an agent, well, it's the same with writing. You're trying to find uh, the publication. You're trying to find the right editor. You're trying to find, you know, even an, a literary agent or a publisher. That in and of itself is, is your time. And so when you finally find it, know your worth and realize how much time you've put in just to the process of getting there. Do not let anyone insult you with a zero income or even a $25 income. I mean, I, I have accepted smaller income uh, from one publication simply because I can publish all the time. I mean, like there's, there's no, no limit to how many articles I can write. So I can, you know, I can make quite a deal, quite a good amount of money just because I can publish a lot. And, and they have a very shorter yeah. article. Right, exactly. When they're really small and I can do many of them, you know, then I don't have a problem with that because it's, I know that it's a lot, you know, really what they're doing is they're just kind of 
doing a smaller amount of money because they know that they have a lot of quantity. So they can't offer as much money because they can't pay that much to that many people. But, you know, right. when you're going to do it, think about all that because you have to really know, you have to know your worth. That's just number one. And then just keep trying and, and, and keep pushing forward and, and remember all the work you're putting into the process and make sure that you get paid for that. Yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I believe that sometimes when you start out, you're going to have to take, um, you know, some uh, lower paying until you gain a, a lot of confidence and you know you mm-hmm. can do it and then you can branch out and just really push to find these other higher paying jobs. And <clears throat> I think that's a great way, you know, a great way to do it. Yeah, because then you've got, you know, a list of, (laughs) you have a list of publications, you know, on your resume too. And of course, the more that you do that, the better, but just never accept the free, never, like you said, never accept the free. That's just not, that's not acceptable. No, it sure is not. All right. So, we only have time for one more topic. Um, (laughs) We've been through so many. Um, I also know that you have just started. It hasn't been you haven't been doing this for very long, but you've also been accepting life coach uh, clients. So tell me about that and what you do and and how you do it. Well, so you know I have the, the degrees in counseling and psychology. Um, however, I know. Honestly, even though I I personally am obviously a fan of counseling, I know it's not the only way uh, to Mm -hmm. healing and personal growth, but it is certainly one very valuable way. And um, it worked for me, so I'm a big proponent of it. Um, So for me, I initially, you know, obviously wanted to be a counselor, and I was for many years, Um, obviously as an intern, but still um, many years did that and – I worked with really a young population, everything from adolescents to young adults and, and you know, even student athletes, and I loved it. Um, and then I took a real hiatus from that for a very long period of time and, as you said, started booking bands, and uh, which was an awesome experience, I might add. Uh, thank you to Jake's Backroom and to Mark Moon for people who – these are people who really entered me into that into that uh, field for a decade of my life, and it was fantastic. Um, the experience wasn't always beautiful, but it was certainly always a lesson, and it, it taught me uh, so many things. Most importantly, to shed my own ego, uh, or at least start making that process to do that. Um, but it was a, a great experience, and it, it gave me a really good break and I did something completely opposite. I mean, music is healing, of course, but it was completely opposite of what I'd done while I was counseling. And I honestly thought I would never get back into that. Um, I, I just never really, I felt burnt out on it, and I never really wanted to get back into the counseling stuff. But then the music stuff started fading off, and um, I've always been grateful that, I've been able to do all these things because they don't all last. I mean, the truth of it is, right. you know, everything everything good comes to an end. And so I know that everything has its season. So, and I've accepted that. I've been very, 
you know, understanding of that process. And it hasn't always been easy. Sometimes I kick and scream, but still, I do know at the end of the day that that's just part of it. And so that came to a close as well. And, you know, I just decided to shift again to something else. I I had also focused quite heavily on Thread Blocks and Rock during that decade. And, um, and actually we'll, we'll be working toward a, a decade long show, our, our 10th show actually in October, but, uh, and that's for a future show. We can talk about that, but I, I decided, okay, you know, I don't want to counsel. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do counseling. Um, not yet. That doesn't, that doesn't say forever because <laughs> the way things move in my life, who knows, but like I could be in the circus next month. We have no idea, but for now, that's not really what I want to do. So I thought, we well, you know, life coaching, that's, that sounds more like what I'd like to do because it's not really all that far off, but it, one, the stigma isn't attached to it. I like that. When I tell people that I can offer them life coaching, they're not automatically indicted like they have some sort of diagnosable problem because what right. the general population doesn't understand is that counseling really isn't just for the insane. It's actually for everyone. And um, it's really just about getting an hour that's all about you and you go in and talk about whatever you need to talk about and someone sits over there and listens to you for an hour and really just becomes a sounding board for you to process through your own stuff. And, I mean, of course, there's different theories that everybody works from, but, of course, my favorite is just simply sitting there and helping you work it out and giving you guidance so that you figure it out on your own and and you're able to heal Mm -hmm. from any past wounds. and. I still do that. I mean, I still do that part in life coaching, but I also focus on solutions and not that counselors don't, they do good counselors, the best counselors do. Um, But in life coaching, my focus is less heavy on you sitting there and telling me all about your life. Although I do want that, but because I need to know where you are and where it comes from, but it's more about me telling you, you know, how to, practice self-care and how to work on your own personal growth and empowerment and coping skills, you know, new coping skills, basically giving people tools in their toolbox. The interesting process has been that uh, I initially started wanting to work with adults. Um, I think the mass, I think the majority of people probably look at me and go, yeah, right. Like you're going to tell an adult, you're not an adult, but like (laughs) the, The thing that always happens, and this has always been my favorite population, I've always loved 13-year-olds. Always are my favorite. And that's all that the universe has been sending me. And I've been so grateful um, for that because that's exactly what I want. And I would have never, you know, advertised that, but that's, that's my favorite group. And that's exactly what I've been getting. And so um, I've been able to really work with, you know, these teens where they are and and give them, you know, life skills and self-care and coping skills and stuff that they, you know, come in without that they don't necessarily have. And that's not a slam on parents or anything like that. It's it's just a matter of their age and where they are. And um, as you all know, everyone out there listening knows, kids listen to people they don't know a lot more than they'll listen to their parents. So it's just, you know, one of those things that but anything I say, their parents have probably said a million times, but they listen for for whatever reason when it comes from somebody else. And so that process has been fantastic, and and it's different because they don't feel like they're going to a counselor. They're going to a life coach. And, of course, what they don't know is that they're getting a little bit of both. But I don't diagnose 
And if there is any, like, really heavy issue or anything that goes deeper, I mean, I'm always going to tell people, like, this does not take the place of counseling. Life coaching doesn't take the place of counseling. If you need a counselor, get a counselor on top of that. And if you just need a counselor, then just get a counselor. But I'm a life coach, which just means that I'm just going to give you direction and guidance. And, of course, I'm going to know where the issues are and what they are and whatever your struggles are. But the main goal for me is just personal growth and relationships and helping you heal um, your relationships using life skills and coping skills and self-care. Good deal. I think it's, I find it's interesting that you're getting the young people um, yeah. coming to you. Uh, Even though I, I didn't, think it's didn't ask for it. <laughs> well, I think it's perfect, though. I mean, I think it's, it's right, you know, the best the best scenario for them. Because I think it's, um, you know, they need somebody with a background in counseling and psychology and all that. Because let's face it, uh, preteens and teenagers are crazy. And (laughs) so, you know, I mean, they need somebody that has, has worked with that age group before. I mean, I've I've worked with kids before and teenagers and and it can be exhausting but um they need somebody that that has worked with that age group and and knows where they're coming from and who can you know give them information that they need so that um they don't get stuck i think that's the a huge thing with with kids is they get stuck and they don't know how to yeah, move and, forward. And, you know, the truth of it is you make a really good point. And I, I have to say this before we finish because it's important for parents to hear. You know, you said, like, <laughs> preteens and teenagers, they're crazy. And, you know, the truth of it is mm-hmm. um, there are a lot of parents out there. There's so much misdiagnosis and overdiagnosis and all kinds of diagnosis out there in the world today, of course, because it makes a lot of money for pharmaceutical companies, sure. which is another soapbox I'll get on on another day. But um, the truth of it is, a lot of the quote-unquote issues that people have with their kids, it's simply their development. It really isn't a diagnosable problem. It's just you're not 13 anymore, so you don't remember. And I think we get the beautiful, pleasant, like, ability to block out (laughs) that stuff Mm -hmm. that happened to us so we don't remember. But the kids, really, they're not not diagnosable. They're just developmentally, they're 13. You know, they're in a – really imbalanced state. I mean, their chemicals are all over the place. Their hormones are all over the place. Everything's just wacky. So, yeah, I mean, they're, <laughs> they seem diagnosable, you know, to an adult who's, I mean, if you saw an adult acting like that, okay, yes, they're dysfunctional. But a 13-year-old, that's totally normal. So it's, sometimes it's a relief just for the kids to come in and, and realize they're, they're normal. They're not, there's nothing wrong with them. They're just Healthy kids at a very difficult age. They're supposed to be at that age. So, you know, they're supposed to to, um, not listen and, you know. Yeah, exactly. It's it's, uh, a good thing for somebody to be able to tell them that and then relay that information of how a parent, you know, needs to behave and and approach a child that age or teen that age. That's really, mm-hmm. really kind of interesting. 
Yeah, I remember those days well. Uh, <laughs> interesting, interesting. Okay, so next thing up is, well, um, so I'm continuing to write, obviously, and uh, I have, you know, quite a few new projects I'm working on, uh, and, and honestly, I'm I'm getting a lot of new, uh, even newer projects coming my way that have to do with an interior decorating, which I've done a little bit of in the past, and that's just another creative outlet, but um, the, the most important and exciting thing, I think, for me to talk about is just really quickly tell you that TLR, uh, for the longest time, I thought I wasn't going to do another one. Um, I was just going to put out a book about it, and uh, nobody rolled their eyes yet because it's not like a intense encyclopedia book. It's a, it's really more of a photo book, and it has. I did write a thesis about TLR, so it does have that information in there because it is a powerful project. It's again, it isn't me. I'm not taking credit for that, but. The fact of the matter is, whoever inspired me to put this out into the world, uh, there was a reason, and it was a divine purpose, and I know that it did, it did have a real healing effect, not only on me, but the people involved, and I wrote about that in, a, in my second master's program, and it'll go in the book, and uh, as will the photos, and it'll be available for purchase, but I am going to do a show. Uh, I have had to look for a new venue because the venue that we did it with before is under new ownership. So I am looking for a new venue, but I'm hoping, I'm crossing my fingers, and I'm just going to put the name out there that, that we can do it at Cactus Theater. Um, I'm contacting a new owner there uh, and hopeful that we can do it there because this particular show is the 10th show. It marks a decade of TLR, and it's TLR remembers Bowie and Prince. And these are both, you know, and for the longest time I fought any idea of a stage a stage performance because TLR is a very interactive performance, but Bowie and Prince were both stage performers. So it feels only appropriate to do a staged performance for TLR. And since we're highlighting both of them in their lives and celebrating them as artists. So that will be happening. And of course people can continue to tune into my page and to TLR's page, Threads, Locks and Rock. And then of course to the Girl Power Hour page to get details and upcoming information. Of course, I'll be talking about it again in September on the show. So we'll have more information about that. So that's, that's what's next for me. Awesome. Well, <laughs> you've got a lot of stuff going on and uh, we'll continue to have a lot of changing up all the time, which is, which is a good thing. You don't get stale and you don't get stuck if you're constantly moving. So I think that's a really good lesson for all of us to learn is just keep moving forward and keep doing what you love and, and putting it out there for everybody. And who needs it will get it. Who doesn't need it will not. And not everybody's going to love you or like you. So that's right. okay. We can't be loved by everybody. So, all right. Well, I will let Tasha go now, and (laughs) we will see you next week on Girl Power Hour, and uh, have a good week. Bye.